up everyone happy weekend okay all right y'all buckle up for this one we are about to relive some childhood and generational trauma in this week's episode um feeling like this might be my first dip into a two or a four or a nine part series because oof does this one carry a lot and also side note i don't want to hear any of y'all commenting on marshy's little tip tapping in the background from his little toes I already know that I'm going to need some marshmallow breaks at least twice throughout this episode, so you're just, you're just going to have to get through it. All right, so intergenerational trauma. If you guys haven't heard of this before, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone kind of has, but um, it's where ancestors, parents, previous generations, whatever, um, where they experience trauma or conflict or abuse, and then they naturally developed a sort of protective trauma response in order to survive or just kind of get through that situation. But the problem with that and when it becomes toxic is when it gets passed down the generational line, when those responses get morphed into something else. And then each generation kind of adds their own trauma in, in a way. And so imagine this little flow chart, if you will, um, Kind of helps give a little explanation for what it can look like. So think of the grandparents during World War II, or honestly, really any war, uh, but you get it. So they're dealing with all that comes with World War, right? Extreme poverty, poverty, abuse, oppression, violence, the draft, people dying, children dying every day, no mental health treatment or acknowledgement of mental health issues, etc., etc., to the max, right? So these grandparents, obviously they're kids at the time, but for our flowchart, let's say that they're the grandparents. So they are going to abuse alcohol or other substances to dull and to numb their pain that they're going through. They're going to commit suicide. They're going to lash out at others because of the PTSD, ergo domestic violence, etc., etc. And so now all of these side effects are going to be, one, experienced by their kids or at least observed by their kids right? And now those kids, now we're in the second tier, they become parents and they're going to develop trauma responses and behavioral patterns like alcoholism, more physical abuse, emotional abuse, because they were also emotionally abused, untreated mental illness because they watched their parents deal with it every day and just suck it up. And I'm using air quotes to the max here, right? So these get passed down to their kids, our third string of generations, the, the grandkids, if you will. And how do they deal with these morph trauma responses? So now they're out here seeking approval. They're um, just because they're craving that physical connection and emotional fulfillment that they never got. And shocker, their parents never got. They've got a weakened self-identity view. They've got eating disorders. They've got attachment issues. Or conversely, they've got dissociative identity disorders, codependency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So um, another nice little visual example that I like to use um, that I feel like kind of makes sense is with food and with eating habits. And so during the Great Depression, obviously food and money to buy food was very scarce. And even also, I hate when people are like, oh, but the farmers were fine. No, they weren't. Because even for the farmers, animals cost money. Food for the animals costs money. The the health services, having a tech like, oh, now they're sick. You need to put them down. Now you're out a cow. Like all of those things, everything that it takes, the tools, everything that it takes 
to raise produce and animals still requires money that they did not have. So yes, everyone was starving and they all had to ration their food. And so what they got was all that they got. And so those kids grew up appreciating food kind of to an unhealthy extreme. And that essentially leads to two options, basically. So one is overeating, because now that you do have food at your fingertips, you can order food to your door. You don't even have to leave the house anymore. Like all of these things, buffets as a principle, all of these things, um, now that you have it, you're like, why not? Let's eat it. And it's just kind of like an unbridled fever dream of excessive eating that everyone goes feral over. And this is a form of an eating disorder. Stress eating is a form of an eating disorder. And the other way it can surface in the next generation is kind of the opposite. So they can undereat because they don't feel like they've earned that food. Air quotes again. They don't feel like they deserve it. Uh, that obviously is also not healthy and can technically count as a form of an eating disorder. And sometimes it's just the stressful in eating environment that they were raised in, where they had a certain amount of food put in front of them and they felt like they had the need to finish everything because that's what their parents forced them to do to not be seen as rude. So now they just have to eat absolutely everything past their comfortability and then they get nauseous and then they have that much less desire to eat food on their own terms later on because then now they're associating mealtimes with strict requirements and expectations to eat until they're nauseous. And so you see how it all just like trickles down. It's just one big reaction to trauma. It's an absolute mess. So that is intergenerational trauma, basically in a nutshell. Um, obviously, I'm not a pro. I, these are just some things that I see, some thoughts that I have on it, but have no fear. I do have actual accredited resources for y'all if you are interested in this topic, if you want to read more into it or know a little bit more about it from someone that is actually qualified to speak on these matters. So if you're a reader or if you're one of those people that just like having books on a bookshelf, even though you maybe never actually read them all the way, um, I do have a recommendation for y'all. So it's called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wallen. It's super, super good. It's pretty cheap on Amazon right now too. So it dives into intergenerational trauma. But what I really like about it is it actually provides you with a lot of like specific clinical techniques that you can just apply to help get yourself out of the inherited trauma hole, if that's something that you feel like you're dealing with right now, um, which statistically most of us are. It's just you maybe don't recognize it. Um, he's also the, he, so he's the director of the Family Constellation Institute in SF. So he's actually local. Um, he's a lecturer. He trains a lot of clinicians. He sees patients himself too. Plus what I think is awesome is he also has a published book of, of poetry, which I think is absolutely amazing because it's very, very rare that you get to see successful creative writers in the same realm as scientists. Normally you never see that. It's kind of one or the other. You're either science-based or you're not. That whole fight between STEM and the fine arts, but I love to see them blended. So yeah, I highly recommend you check that out. It goes a lot more in depth into intergenerational trauma, but there is another example that I wanna kind of touch on before I go to my movie recommendation on intergenerational trauma. And so this example of 
people that I'm sure we've seen a lot. We all have seen a lot. It's so, oh, super, super, super common. And that is people pleasing and the seemingly impossible ability to tell people no. And so this can stem from so many different trauma responses or childhood experiences, but usually from what I've seen and from what I've read, it's usually tied to an innate need to maintain like a sense of equilibrium in the home or their environment. And I feel like people pleasers are almost always stronger empaths too, because they're so used to reading their audience because they put other people's needs and emotions above their own. They see like, okay, this person, my mom, my brother, my sister, my grandpa, whatever, this person, their well-being and their stability is more important than my own. So what can I do right now to fix that so we can have a stable household and a stable environment to grow up in? That's kind of all where it kind of stems from. So they're usually, like I said, from what I've seen, they're normally huge empaths. They just, they're used to reading their audience, reading the room to see, okay, this emotional conflict is brewing. Like, how can I fix that? How can I avoid this conflict from popping up? It's a very, very adaptive coping mechanism. And so if you didn't have your emotional, social, physical needs met as a child, you very, very, very quickly learn how to people please in order to hopefully get those needs met. But again, because you're an empath, you're seeing other people and you're like, well, I don't want them to be emotionally neglected. So I'm going to give them all of my emotional energy, all of this attention, all of this effort to make sure that they don't feel the same way that I felt. And so you're doing all of this, not it's emotionally draining, right? Absolutely. But it helps. It does create a safer, less volatile environment, which is the whole reason why, why they're doing that. It avoids conflict and opposing opinions, especially for my folks with really strict parents and insanely unattainable expectations. It is much more likely for a kid to try to do absolutely everything that they can to please their parents or their siblings or whoever, because they aren't going to get that praise or validation otherwise. So, oh, you want me a nurse? Because that's the cultural expectations for females to be a nurse? All right, that's my career path. That, that that decision is made for me. Absolutely, I will do that because that's what you want. That will make you happy. That will hopefully make you proud of me. And now obviously this, all of this, right, comes with its own downfall too, which I'm sure you guys can kind of see. Um, it's emotionally draining. You're losing your sense of your own self and your own identity if you're always masking to please others. And it's also, you're not, you're not taking care of yourself. A lot of times from the people, people pleasers that I've seen and known, they have the time they're, they're like self care. What's that? Because they don't, they're so used to taking care of others that half the time they don't even know how to take care of themselves. All right. And now hmm, I've saved the best for last for my visual folks. Y'all already know what movie I'm going to highlight in this episode. Good old Encanto. Oh, oh, I love Encanto. It's so good. I cannot praise it enough. It's so deep. It just hits you right in the feels. Anyone with any sort of like intergenerational trauma, which like I said, it's kind of everybody. Uh, it, dude, it just, it hits 
differently. You know, it hits you right in the feels. And Kanto literally is the epitome of generational trauma and how it can affect everyone, even in the same family, it will affect everyone differently. And the trauma responses will manifest themselves differently in everybody. So if you haven't seen it yet, you need to. But basically, I'll give you all the rundown. It starts with a, a young married couple. They've got these three little triplet babies and they're trying to escape from their hometown that's being like pillaged. And the dad stays behind to fight them off. And then he dies. And this magical candle built up a huge forest, fortress place to protect them. And then they all grow up happily. Happily with air quotes to the max. So it becomes this huge big village that no one ever leaves. And so each kid at their coming of age moment, I think it's, dang, what is it? Five or six years old or something. They're pretty young. Um, they have this huge ceremony that everyone attends and then they open a door and they get a magical superpower that, shocker, is not used for themselves. It's used for others to help out the town. Everyone, of course, except Mirabelle, the main character. She's the only one that doesn't get a gift. And so all of this pressure to preserve and run this town is put on the grandmother, the OG mom, the young mom from the very beginning. And so you have to kind of... Is she the toxic matriarchy? Yes. However, I have to be fair. Technically, it's not like she's aware of it and she's not doing it on purpose. She has her own reasons for her toxic responses and her trauma responses. So I have to go into that. But um, so, I mean, not even mentioning the toxicity and the trauma of this raid that was going through, but she watched her husband die in front of her. She had to deal with the abandonment that comes with that. The stress of being a single mother to triplets. Good Lord. I can't imagine that. That sounds terrible. And then she's socially isolated from everyone. I would assume that she had friends and family and loved ones in that town that is now gone. Now she's by herself in the middle of a forest. So she's dealing with all of that. And so anyway, she's now, fast forward a few generations, she's putting an unrealistic amount of pressure on all of the children, all of the grandkids to carry the weight of the town because she feels ultimately responsible for all of them and for their survival. But it's also instilling this idea that the kids are only worth the value that their gifts can provide. And so subsequently, Mirabelle, the only one without a gift, is just inherently useless because she has nothing to offer. She's immediately seen as a burden as soon as she doesn't get a gift. She has no value. She's wasted space. She's eventually blamed for the downfall of the house, the magic, the family. And it becomes a very conditional form of quote-unquote love because the kids... The aunts, the uncles, the cousins, they're all, they're only loved if they have something to offer. If they have a gift of some kind that can be of help to other people to run the town. And even more so, so obviously there was some form of political unrest in this pre-Encanto times, right? In that village raid that we see in the very, very beginning when we see the OG dad die. And so you also have to think about it in this way too. They never went back out into society afterwards. They only stayed in their little fortress village place that was grown by the magic candle. And so it can be safely presumed that the OG mom, the grandma, 
she doesn't know if things are any better or not out there in the in the real world, quote unquote. And so she can't risk letting the village fail and her family ending up back in that same environment that killed her husband. So she also has that burden of the responsibility, the PTSD from the trauma, like so on and so forth. However, still don't like her. All right, but let's unpack some of the other characters so that way we can kind of see how this, you know, how this intergenerational trauma manifests itself in different ways. And so <laughs> we have my absolute favorite character, Louisa, the super strong one. It's, it's so good. Her song makes me cry every single time. Um, and in this song, she says that she feels an overwhelming pressure to perform, basically, and always be the indestructible strong one. She's the first character to crack, essentially, and show signs of burnout and underappreciation. All the difficult tasks are given to her because she's the strongest. So everyone's like, oh, Louisa, move the cows over here. Oh, the, the camel got out again. Oh, I don't like my foundation of the house on this side. Can you put it on that side so I can get the east sun on my flower? Like, and so she's like, okay, okay, okay. I'll move, literally move mountains for you, for all these people. And so it's just more and more and more and more and more that they're piling on her. And she feels like she has to succeed no matter what. And arguably, she is the biggest people pleaser in this movie. And one of the lines in her song is, Give it to your sister. Your sister's stronger. Give her all the heavy things we can't shoulder. Who am I if I can't carry them all? Mm. It just... It, it gets me every time. It's I'm telling you, people are sleeping on Disney movies. They don't understand how deep that they get. Also, let's not forget that all of the music in this movie was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And so he is fantastic in every category. So all of the music is excellent. But let me just give you a little teaser of my absolute favorite song here. A break what's demanded, but under the surface, I feel berserk as a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. Under the surface, was Hercules ever like yo? Oh, it's so good. So there you have it. You heard, um, I mean, at one point she literally says, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. So kind of gives you a little insight into her trauma response there and her unrealistic expectations of herself as a people pleaser. But yes, that's Louisa. That's one character. And so I do want to add on one more piece, sorry, about people pleasing and that dynamic, especially in the terms of children fighting for their parents' love and affection. Because in Encanto, we have the three sisters, Luisa, the strong one, Isabel, the, the pretty perfect child one. And then we have Mirabel, the main character, but also the one that doesn't have a gift. And so those three are definitely, definitely fighting for their parents' affection. And it's, it's wild because the OG mom, the grandma, isn't even aware of the toxic, and yes, I said it's toxic, fight me on it, the toxic situation that she's created for her family and for this whole village. 
because she absolutely favors some daughters, cough, Isabel, <laughs> more than others. And so those two are always trying to outdo themselves in order to be seen as more productive, more helpful, just better in any category. And so, again, to be fair, I do have to talk about Isabel. Um, there's not a ton to say, but I think it is important to kind of highlight her too. because So she's the perfect child, right? She's the one that just creates flowers everywhere and always has perfect hair. She just kind of floats down from the sky in her little flower chair swing thing. But I will say she is held to unrealistic perfectionist standards and that is very difficult and that can be very overwhelming. There is no freedom to do anything new. There's no freedom or there's no room for error to make any mistake whatsoever because everything she touches always has to be perfect and beautiful and just perfect, right? And I mean, that is, that's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. That is a lot. Like she just wants to be independent. She wants to make her own choices. She wants to have the freedom that Mirabelle has. And then on the other hand, Mirabelle is, she just wants to be accepted by her family. She just wants to be able to do anything right because she knows that she will never be good enough for the grandma, the OG mom. And don't you, don't you worry. We are going to talk about Bruno, okay? So Bruno, possibly the best character also, second to Louisa, but... Luis is kind of in a, a realm of her own. So Bruno is the goth outcast, right? He's the black sheep, which shocker, most truth-telling members in toxic households will be. And that's why him and Mirabelle get along so well because they're both cast out from the family. They're both ostracized for calling out any imperfections or toxic behaviors that they see. And this whole family basically banished Bruno to the rats in the wall just for speaking his truth. But, I mean, realistically, that always happens in toxic environments. They get rejected. They get gaslit. They're immediately the scapegoat for all wrongdoings because they choose to deviate from the standard path and because they highlight the problems in this situation. And no one wants to be called out. No one wants to be told that they're wrong, that they're the toxic one. It's very hard for them to accept that and to actually take responsibility for their own actions. But one thing I will say... Um, at the end of Encanto, and they kind of all figure their, their issues out a little. And once they bring it up pretty explicitly to the, the OG mom, the grandma, once they say like, hey, you're putting too much pressure on us. We are not okay. That's when she kind of realized like, oh, sorry, I was just trying to do the best I can. And it just wasn't good enough. Then they did kind of start to heal and then they were all a little bit more appreciative and things kind of softened up a little bit. So I will say that is encouraging um, in multiple avenues that, you know, sometimes if you just are honest with people and if you just tell them like, hey, maybe don't say that because it's racist and offensive or hey, um, please stop putting unrealistic expectations on me that I will never be able to obtain because it's making me feel like I'm never good enough. Maybe, maybe they will, hopefully they will actually recognize what they're doing, take responsibility for that, and then work on themselves and be better. So that is encouraging at least. Um, 
<sighs> okay, I think I think that's all I've got right now for generational trauma. I think that's a good place to end it. We'll pick back up next week. Um, I do want to close with this quote that I found by William Faulkner. It says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. So take that for what you will. But all right. Catch y'all next week. Be decent human beings. Make good choices. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye.